Amen. Why don't we pray one more time, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you again for the gift and the privilege of worship. And we want to continue, Lord, in that thought, in that heart. We want to continue in that mindset. We want to continue with that focus on your great glory as we dive into your great word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the character, the virtue, that you would give us the grace, that you would give us the strength, Lord, to endure and to persevere in these wonderful virtues that you have set before us here in this wonderful letter, because they are all just a reflection of your Son. They are just a reflection of His character, His fullness, His stature, His maturity, His mind. And so we ask, O God, give us now the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord, like Him, to be clothed, all of us, with humility. Lord, and help us to rightly have regard for Your people today. As Paul declares in Philippians chapter 2, Lord, may we look out more for the interests of others rather than the interests of ourselves. And in that way, Lord, fulfill the law of Christ. We thank you. We ask your, time, your blessing on this time now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, we are going at a snail's pace. Uh, don't want to finish. The, can you tell I don't want to finish the letter? Uh, We're doing one verse today, and that's okay because this is a big one. This is a monumental uh, passage for any church uh, because uh, Paul is dealing with the issue of what we could consider to be real conflict in the church. And all conflict arises because our hearts are not right, because we don't treat each other with the right type of love, the right type of dignity, the right type of honor. We don't prefer one another. We don't... Uh, love each other as we ought to. And so this is a very important text that I don't want to just kind of gloss over and it comes and goes. But I want us to really feel the weight of it. And so as Paul talks about this, it's just a reminder for us as he's addressing Christians in the local church and he's telling the members of this church not to repay one another with evil. Uh, First of all, he doesn't sugarcoat the issue, does he? Uh, he didn't say, don't, don't, don't just seek out revenge, don't, don't pay back one another, don't, uh, don't be harsh with, e- with each other. No, he uses the word kakas, which means evil. Uh, there's no way around it. And so Paul here is actually wanting us to be realistic about life in the church. So many people fail at this juncture in their Christian lives. They think that the church is supposed to be something other than what it is. We looked at that when we talked about what is the church militant. Uh, Because we are in the present age in which we are in, the church is going to be beset by all sorts of different uh, problems and sins, and we're going to be hindered, and we're going to have to confront hard issues. And part of that is that we're going to have to live with other people that, like ourselves, are fallen and sinful and imperfect and can rub us the wrong way, to put it lightly, or as Paul says, can do evil to us. Uh, But the critical thing here is not for us to be surprised that that is the state of the church in the present age. The thing for us, what, what really draws our attention and what we really should be focused on is what is our response 
Because we know that conflict and problems in the church are going to arise. And if you haven't experienced that yet, maybe you haven't been a Christian for that long yet, but for any length of time that you have been a Christian, you know that this is real, that this happens. You know that there's a real need, an actual uh, cause for us to be intentional about the way that we resolve conflict in the church. And that's what I want to do. I want to do that by focusing on how do we do this in a gospel-centered way? What does the gospel teach us? Because I'm convinced that if we have this, if we have the mindset of the gospel, or if we are thinking gospel-centered, the way that we approach all conflict, all sorts of issues, problems, sins, whatever we might encounter in this world, we are going to deal with it in a different way. We're going to have the right attitude, the right mindset, the right heart. We're going to, re- we're going to repay one another, not evil for evil, but good in place of evil, as he talks about it. That takes a supernatural perspective. That takes a whole different approach to relationships one that doesn't happen naturally. It's not our natural tendency to do this. It is something that is foreign to us, and therefore, we need to be reminded, what does the gospel say we ought to do in this situation? Whether we're talking about corporately as a church, or whether we are thinking individually among one another, the friction, the problems, the sin, the way that we can offend one another whether in the church or in the marriage, in the family, among our spouses, among our siblings, among our co-workers, wherever. It's just absolutely critical that we respond in the right way. So the very first thing based on this text that I want to say is that the gospel teaches us, number one, to identify evil. See that no one repays another with evil evil for evil. That means you need to be able to, first of all, identify what is evil. In other words, first identify whether an actual sin has been committed against you. You know, if you think about church discipline, for example, the very first step to church discipline is that you are, well, the very first cause of church discipline is that someone has sinned against you. But you better be ready to identify that sin. It can't just be that you feel like somebody offended you or somebody gave you a weird look or something like that or said something that stepped on your toes. No, no, no. They had to have actually violated God's law in order to qualify for the next step of church discipline, right? And so we need to be able to identify what is legitimate, what is a legitimate offense. But this just kind of draws the whole the whole subject of evil out. We, uh, the gospel teaches us first and foremost to identify what are those toxic, sinful things that we need to be careful about because if left unchecked, they can wreak havoc on the church. The Apostle Paul, if you turn with me to 2 Timothy, for example, the Apostle Paul actually addresses this, and he, this, this reality actually happened in Ephesus when Paul's writing to Timothy there was a problem in the church, and this is, a, this is a good one because it's so explicit. These are individual people that are actually called out by name for the things that they were doing wrong. And what they were doing wrong was no, no less than exactly what Paul says here, evil because of what they did. And you'll see this. And here's another thing. Look at 2 Timothy, as I said, chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But I want you to notice how important words are. 
when we're thinking about conflict in the church. And of course, this is a drastic example, but it really draws out the implication. I was just circling all the verses, all the, the, the words in here that refer to talking, to the use of the mouth, to the use of the tongue. Isn't that so incredibly true in terms of conflict in the church? It almost seems to always begin with the mouth, right? It always begins with something that was said, something that was heard, some slander, some gossip, something like that. Oh, look at this. Or some, in this case, some heresy. He says in verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Now, what he's talking about there is meaningless sort of controversial debating about matters, tertiary issues that have nothing to do with building each other up in the faith. It's just seeking out argument for argument's sake. He says, which are useless and lead to the ruin of the hearers. That's how powerful words are, right? They can actually ruin the people hearing. Uh, He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. So uh, be careful there because this verse is not saying, well, see, that's why you shouldn't get into doctrinal specificity because you know what they say, you know, Christ unites, but doctrine divides. As, as if doctrine is bad or something like that. No, because right here, Paul is telling, Tim, Paul is telling Timothy to, to be equipped in the Word of God, to accurately handle the Word of God. So it cannot be a warning against theology. Um, but then he says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. Another reference to speech. And he says, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It's almost as if toxic speech is the entry point for toxic living further ungodliness. And watch this again. And their talk, another reference to speech, and their talk will what? Spread like gangrene among them. Then he names these perpetrators directly, Hemenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying, there's the doctrine they're trying to espouse, that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. So simple, right? Simple that with just words, they can unsettle the faith of people around them. This is just one expression of what happens in a church when evil is not really identified and not quickly dealt with. Paul doesn't mince any words here about how sinister church conflict can get, how out of control church conflict can actually get. He didn't simply admonish them not to be harsh with one another or not to use a bad tone or not to be cold towards one another. He tells them, do not return evil for evil. And and this is a warning. Matter of fact, you see where he says there, he says, see that no one, that word that he uses there for see, it's an interesting term because it literally means to look, like physically with your eyes. But in a context like this, this word, hara'o, literally takes upon the language of sobriety. Um, the BDAG actually interprets this word here as being on guard. So it's a warning. He's, the NIV has a good translation. It translates it as make sure. So it's a call to action even. I like that. We have to make sure. We have to be on guard. We have to watch out that we do not respond with the wrong attitude when we are Wrong. The same word is used in Galatians chapter 5 in a very similar parallel context in Galatians 5.15 where Paul warns the church about biting and devouring one another. 
He says in the same way, Paul, uh, look at, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, here's the word, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So in other words, it's a call for spiritual vigilance among the church. And Paul's admonishing them here that what they're meddling with, what they are engaged in here, is nothing less than evil. Evil is at work. Look at, uh, turn with me in your Bibles just to see this. I want to take a different, a different approach to it from a different perspective. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When evil is at work in the inner relations of the church, when evil is at work in the conflicts of the church, the evil one is not far behind. Now, I know that, you know, in our modern-day evangelical climate, talking about the devil's influence is kind of dangerous because you tend to fall off on one side or the other, right? It's almost like you either caricature the devil like he's the boogeyman and he's hiding behind every bush in the church, right? Or something like that. But that's a cartoonish view of the devil. But at the same time, you also have uh, kind of the opposite side of the equation where we never take into account Satan's influence, his sway, his power, and and what he's really about in, in, in the church. But Paul had no problem talking about this. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 5, because here we have a perfect illustration of what we're talking about in Thessalonians in terms of real legitimate conflict in the church, this time involving Paul himself, because there was someone in the Corinthian church that was undermining Paul, was um, uh, attacking Paul, was, was undermining his apostolic authority, was slandering him, all these things, ultimately causing him sorrow. And he says, but if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. In other words, this has boomeranged around to the church. This has had, Paul's, you know, basically saying, look, the sorrow that it's causing me is not as big as the sorrow that's causing, that, that's being caused to the church, which is far worse, because it affects the unity, affects the body life of the church, all of that. He says this, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. What's that talking about? Basically, church discipline. The church apparently had some sort of meeting, some official meeting, where the church literally voted to um, engage in church discipline. He says, look, the punishment that that individual received was sufficient. In other words, he's, now he's calling for the language of restoration. And he's saying, so that on the contrary, you should, not, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Wow, so it seems as if that person may have repented, may have come back to his senses. And now Paul is saying, no, now the church's attitude needs to go away from disciplinary tone to a loving, embracing tone and a, a, a conciliatory tone and reconcile with that brother. He says, otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. You see that? For to this end uh, also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, the church has to be able to follow through all the way with the process of reconciliation, which is, should be the outcome that we're looking for in every disciplinary situation. But now look at verse 10. He says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. In other words, he stands with the judgment of the church. He says, for indeed... What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. In other words, his interest in, in, in forgiving this person 
it was even more so the health of the church. And what's the whole rationale behind it? So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So when he says no advantage, that that tips us off to Satan's aim and his ability. So what is Satan's aim? His aim is the destruction of the church, the harm of the church, the division of the church, the confusion of the church, the hard-heartedness of the church. And what is the ability of Satan? His ability is to do this, to take advantage of a sinful and a confusing situation and a harmful situation in its own right. In other words, he, he breathes a demonic air on our conflict. If we're not careful, if we're not wise, if we're not vigilant, you will not know but that you, are, you have become inadvertently a pawn in the hand of the enemy. If you do not have this sort of spiritual vigilance, that's why the gospel teaches us that behind the conflicts of our strife, our division that can arise between us is the father of lies. He is active. He is lurking and lying in wait to see how bad is the conflict going to get before he pounces and before he condemns and before he devours the fruit of the church and the faith of the believer. That's what that's what the enemy ultimately wants. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 make that crystal clear that what Satan is after is, is, is the faith of the believer. He wants to devour the faith of the believer so he doesn't trust in the truth of Scripture or in the claims of the gospel. Not just identifying evil, but obviously the gospel also teaches us to reject evil. So the temptation is... Something has been done to me. Evil has been done to me. And the temptation is, is to return with evil. So some sort of sinful attitude towards me. The natural course of our flesh is to return and to respond in kind. And that's why it's so important for us to identify all this. Even redeemed sinners can easily succumb to the impulse that arises in our hearts that is born out of the flesh to respond to wrongdoing, to being offended. But Paul says, do not repay. In other words, this is a call not to seek out vengeance, but to mortify our sin. See, it's more than just abstaining from a certain attitude. I'm claiming that this is a call to mortification. Um, The reason why is because sin is so serious. I turn to James chapter 3. I was thinking about this verse all week long. Because I thought, okay, this has so much to do with the tongue, with the mouth, what we do with our lips. And so much of it is, 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 is sort of found there. But if we don't have a proper view of evil, of sin, then we won't take mortification of sin serious. It's that simple. James chapter 3, you guys know this uh, text. I thought, you know, I'd read it so that we can understand something of the destructive hurricane-like damage that sin can cause. I was reading this passage in James. I was reminded about all the wildfires in Southern California. I actually saw some drone footage of the wildfires up in Redding, and just it was like neighborhood block after neighborhood block. Houses were just demolished by a forest fire. Lives wiped out 
I mean, just the devastation. I mean, you hear of a forest, you know, you hear of a wildfire and all of that. But it wasn't until I saw the neighborhoods and I thought, wow, if that was my neighborhood. Look at the destruction. I mean, you don't rebuild from that overnight. And that's what James actually compares the tongue to. Let's, let's begin in verse 1 for context's sake. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. What a somber warning that is. Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment, which there's a big debate. What does that mean? Judgment from God, judgment from man. I would say both. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Well, that's an interesting statement there. Able to bridle the whole body as well. That's an interesting statement because what he's setting up here is that like what he's he's putting a lot of chips into this basket, isn't he? In other words, what he's saying, if you can control what you say, you're perfect. See, this is sort of um, this is sort of a common in the genre of wisdom literature, which is that's what James is, is to speak almost in a hyperbolic way, to make a point, and that's what he's doing here. To make the point, he's trying to stress how absolutely crucial the tongue is to our sanctification. He says, be a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also... The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Uh, my understanding is that that fire that I was talking about in Reading was started by a homeless man who was trying to cook something for himself or something like that, and that that burst into flame. That little, act, that little small fire that he had going turned into a multi-thousand acre forest fire. I mean, just un- incredible. One word, one little word of gossip, one little word of slander, one half-truth, one little thing like that can just set a church ablaze and it and, 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 and gets to the point where it could be uncontrollable. And that's why he's cautioning us to this. He says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire, brothers and sisters, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Wow. And sets on fire the course of our life. And it is set on fire by hell. That's another uh, amazing statement there that corresponds to what we were looking at in Corinthians in terms of Satan's influence. Now, maybe I'm sensitive to this only because I'm a pastor. And I... Kind of, I, I'm kind of in the business of putting out fires, of making that phone call, of making that visitation, of pulling those people aside, having that conversation, of confronting that gossip, of going after that slander, of trying to put out that division. So I'm sensitive to this because I've seen it in front of my eyes. I've seen how gossip, as the proverb says, can divide good friends. And so he says, for every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race but no one can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison 
That's how we ought to view all sin. All sin should be viewed with this degree of of potential danger. He says, and look at the irrational, uh, illogical, self-contradictory nature of sin. With our tongues, saying, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. He says, who have been made in the likeness of God. Couldn't be anything more contradictory than that. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Jeffrey Wyma, in his commentary on Thessalonians, reminds us just how powerful our impulse towards evil is. He says, The human desire for vengeance is so strong and destructive that it's not surprising that both in biblical and non-biblical sources, they speak against any sort of retaliatory behavior. Even the harsh language, or excuse me, the harsh-sounding Old Testament principle of retribution. Now listen closely now. The lex telionis, which is the eye for the eye principle, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, he says, is actually or was actually intended to restrict vengeance to an exact equivalent of that which was wronged. What's he saying there? What he's saying there is that even the old covenant, old Testament theocratic principle of the lex tilionis, the the principle of eye for an eye, it may seem harsh to us looking back now, but the purpose of it was to restrain man's heart, not to enable his heart. It was to restrain, which shows us and reveals us that God knew and God instructed Israel back then that they were not to trust their heart. He had to put a law to make sure that they did not run the natural, cur- their natural course of their own heart and seek out retribution because then they would easily go beyond justice to vengeance. You see, God's so wise in doing that, of course. Seeking vengeance is sadly not rooted in justice. Many times it's simply rooted in malice. That's where our hearts tend to go. And this Old Testament law ran its course. It had its purpose. It fulfilled its function. And it was surpassed by a much greater law. I'm going to give you a bunch of verses here that you really need to take into account, but they're all rooted in Matthew chapter 5. So turn there with me. But in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to see that even that Old Testament principle, as just and wise as it was for God to institute that law, it was nevertheless what theologians call positive law. You know what positive law is? Positive law is that aspect of the law of God that is temporarily put into enforcement and then it can be retrieved when something superior is, is, is uh, enforced. So in other words, we're not looking at strict moral law here. This was a positive law of God so that the lex tilionis is no longer needed. We, don't no, we no longer do that. In other words, if you steal something from me, I don't get to take something from you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, that's not the way that it works. If you commit murder, I am not allowed to commit, you know, to, to put somebody to death. We're no longer in that theocratic system. And so what Jesus brought was something that was actually representative of the kingdom of God. 
and not the theocracy, but as we'll see. You can see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when lawsuits broke out in Corinth, uh, the Apostle Paul was appalled. Uh, he didn't like to hear that Christians are suing one another. I- I've known Christians that have sued one another. It's ugly. It's ugly. It's disgraceful. It's dishonorable. It, it's a reproach on Christ. Uh, it does a lot of damage. You know, it splits up families and friends. It's horrible. Uh, but he addresses that here, and look at the attitude. This is see, see, this is the glory, the outshining, sort of uh, superlative glory of the new covenant shining through here. He says in First Corinthians six seven. He says, actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? See how radical Paul is there. That's a supernatural attitude. <laughs> that doesn't come naturally. That's not, that's not the natural course of our heart. Our natural tendency is to get even. Our natural tendency, defend yourself, not be defrauded. He says, why not rather, rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Wow. He says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Wow, it's just a total scandal that that would take place. But that is even rooted in a prior principle that you find in Matthew. So if you went to Matthew like I told you to go to Matthew a while ago, then your finger is still there. Because in Matthew chapter 5, this is the ethics of the kingdom of God intruding upon this world, shattering the old mold and establishing a new order for the people of God. It's amazing what's going on here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says, You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, Jesus says, But I say to you, it's almost like, well, who do you have to be to say to us? Right? You're quoting Old Testament law, and you're saying, but I say to you. Wow, you better have some authority to interject upon the law of God that way. Well, he has all authority. So he can say it. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I remember watching a video with my good friend, Tony Miano, who was doing some open-air preaching. And he was he's preaching, and this guy was walking by. He got really offended because he said something like, murder's wrong. And I think he... I don't, I don't know. Anyway, so I don't know what, what happened, but the guy snapped, and he just ran after the open-air preacher and got up to him and just started, you know, just started teeing off on, on... Now, if you guys know Tony Miano, you know, Tony Miano was law enforcement for many, many years. He could handle himself. And that guy, you know, posed really no threat. But the humility that came over him to allow himself to be struck without striking back, I was like... Man, you're godly. I don't know if I could do that right now. I like to say I like to impress you guys and tell you I could, but I don't know, man. Tony didn't hit back. And that is because of this principle. That it is better to be struck on one side of your face and to give your enemy the other side than to take vengeance into your hand. Jesus said, if anyone wants to, wants, you, wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Wow. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. 
Now that goes back to the Greco-Roman world that they were living in under that time where a Greco-Roman soldier would come up to a Jewish peasant and say, hey, I need you to pick up my stuff and you need to walk a mile with me down the road and carry my things. Can you imagine if somebody just came up to you and told you that? Hey, I need you to, you know, pick up my things and just, you know, maybe you're at the mall or something. Hey, pick up my bags and carry them for me for a mile. He'd be like, who are you? Security. Hello? No, Jesus says, do it and go further with him. Give to him who asks you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Wow. I tell you, that's the, that's the height of heights. That's the Mount Everest of theology that we're looking at right here. We're looking at someone who was otherworldly, who was not of this world. We're looking at somebody whose entire priority was eternal, the kingdom of God. Heaven was his home. This world had nothing to offer him. And therefore, you couldn't humble a humble man. In the same spirit of this, the Apostle Paul echoed this when he was the victim of slander himself. And he talks about in 1 Corinthians 4, when we are reviled, we bless. And I know that he had Jesus in mind when he was writing this. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, here is the right response. We try to conciliate. You find out somebody said something about you falsely. The your immediate response if you learn from the gospel is something must be wrong because there's no way that that brother or that sister would say that about me. They must be confused. Think the good. I miss R.C. Sproul, don't you? I miss his teachings. I miss his books coming out, new books and new material coming out all the time. I miss R.C. Sproul and One of the reasons I miss him so much is because he was such an amazing storyteller, right? Usually, like, telling stories is like a seeker-sensitive thing. It's like you wanted to hear Sproul tell stories. I did anyway. And one of my favorite stories that he would tell in his, uh, some of his lectures was the the story of Thomas Aquinas. Who's Thomas Aquinas? Well, Thomas Aquinas was the pinnacle of scholastic theology in the, you know, pre-Reformation and during the Reformation era. And he was one of the only, probably I think the only medieval philosopher, or maybe even all the philosophers, who was strictly known by his first name. That's how influential, that's how prominent, that's how monumental Thomas Aquinas was, is that when you wanted to refer to him, you simply referred to him as Thomas, because there was no other. Thomas, uh, interesting biography on Thomas Aquinas, though, is he was known to have a big head. No, like physically a big head, not that he had, you know, went to his head. He had, a, he had an oversized head, and so that, that caused a lot of bullying when he was growing up. So people would bully Thomas Aquinas. And a story comes out that illustrates our point here. Uh, he was so brilliant, that students would make fun of him, and they would make fun of him. Sometimes the professor would hear, and the professor told the students one time, that boy that you guys are laughing at is going to change the world one day. And the Summa Theologica is a massive tome of philosophy and theology that he wrote. Now, Thomas Aquinas, I don't follow his theology, was synergistic. He was semi-Pelagian, Armenian, you know, whatever. But, but, but it just illustrates the point. And one time he walked into the classroom with his students. I think he was in elementary. And they said, 
Thomas, look. Look outside. Pigs are flying. And Thomas ran to the window. And he looked up. And they said, Thomas, giggling, pigs don't fly. And they all laughed at him. Thomas turned to them and he said, I would rather believe that pigs fly, but then my friends would lie to me. Can you imagine the coals <laughs> that came over the heads of those children? In other words, we, we, we believe the good before we assume the bad. It's so easy for us not to do that. And Peter reminds us, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, because as we're thinking about how the gospel defines all of this, the gospel-centered perspective is a Christ-centered perspective. The virtue that Thomas Aquinas distributed, or or, uh, displayed there, rather, is the virtue that is displayed supremely in Jesus Christ. Again, it all comes back to a Christ-centered perspective of sanctification. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, but it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in His footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. So first of all, you're dealing with somebody with the right motives. And when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. That's the principle. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. To judges righteously. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, because there the Apostle Paul really touches on all of this. Paul would explain later in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19, he says, excuse me, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so when persecution, like we spoke about in Sunday school, comes, we're never to seek revenge for ourselves. We are not to form Christian militias and take up arms and defend ourselves and start killing our enemies. That is, not, that is a complete opposite of what Jesus said to do, right? My servants are, my kingdom is not of this world or my servants would fight. But because my kingdom is not of this world, Christian militias, militias do not exist. And so we do not take up arms to defend ourselves. That's a big one. Verse 20 says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. See that? But overcome evil with good. No, no, no. We're not leaving that. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. You know what he's saying right there? The most powerful principle in the universe is not evil. When you see a Christian being slaughtered, like many people are around the world, the power of that, as malicious and as sinister as it is, the power in that persecution... 
That is not the power in the universe that matters. That, that level of darkness, that is not the ultimate truth here. That's what Jesus said. That's what Peter's talking about. That is not the ultimate thing. The kingdom of God is the ultimate thing. The glory of God is the ultimate thing. That's the ultimate thing. The Spirit of God, that's the ultimate thing. And the people doing this are completely blind to it. And so Stephen can say, Father, don't hold this against them. Because he saw it. He was given such a beautiful glimpse of heaven itself was open right in front of him. But this is the path to victory. This is how you overcome evil with good. So what does he say here? Where am I at? First, back to our text. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. It's a mighty calling. So the Gospel teaches us, therefore, not just to identify what evil is, not just to reject evil, but to overcome evil with good. That's the key. That's the path to real and lasting victory. Victory over what? Victory over envy. Victory over jealousy, over wrath, over bitterness, over division, over unforgiveness. So many people are poisoned today in the church with unforgiveness. People are poisoned today in the church with bitterness because of some legitimate evil that has happened to them or illegitimate evil. Who knows? But they're filled with all these toxic things that they're holding on to. All these problems. And the way, the way to get around this is to have a regular, habitual, sincere display of good in our lives. That's the way that we can build our immunity towards being a vengeful, revengeful people. But in order to see that happen in our lives, two things we need to see here. Two things are in view here. Number one, we are called to single out the church as the recipients of our greatest affection. So that's why he says, always seek after that which is good. And then he uses this all familiar phrase, for one another. Now, we know what he's talking about there. One another is the church, the local church, the body, the members of the church. Lavish one another with that love. And what he's saying here is, is that before we make this just so, sort of a general principle, before we make this a general principle, first we have to particularize the principle. Before we make this just a normal moral maxim for the masses, first it applies discriminately for the church. We have to specialize the principle before we generally apply it to everybody. In other words, this distinguishes the body of Christ. If we don't partition this imperative in this way, then we run the risk, brothers and sisters, of having nothing but moralism, nothing but superficial spirituality. If we don't understand that first and foremost, our affections, we owe these affections to the body of Christ first. That's our priority, loving the church. That's the first priority. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul reminds us of how to do this how we can increase in the unity of faith and the bond of the Spirit in love and peace. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice. 
Oh, I love this phrase here in this verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Rejoice, be made complete. Oh, I love that. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Sound like Thessalonians? And the God of love and peace will be with you. In other words, if we want to experience the sweet influences of the Spirit of God among us, we have to dispense this level of good toward one another. This is how it happens. Notice also the habitual nature of this. Paul was very specific here in writing this. He says, always, he used that word, pantete, always seek after this. And so this is first and foremost a habitual, constant ongoing, continual disposition of the Christian. It's not just a one-time act. It's not just a one-time act of kindness for one another. No, 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 no. It's a permanent mindset. It's continuous good works. We're being directed toward a virtue that will define our character. There ought to be an enduring constancy, therefore, in seeking the good of one another. It's not just enough, brothers and sisters. And this is the part, if anything... Write this down, take this home, meditate on everything that I said from today, but meditate on this. It's not just enough to say, well, I'm not doing anything wrong to anyone. Right? Isn't that how the flesh speaks? Right? I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not gossiping. I'm not slandering. I'm not offending anybody. That's not the call. The call is to actively pursue doing good. So then the question that we need to write down and ask ourselves and probe introspectively later in ourselves and through self-examination is what good am I doing to those around me? How can I most edify them? And we can go down the whole list of how we can do that to be a blessing to one another, to lavish one another with good and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit, really. But notice another thing, brothers and sisters. It moves from a strictly ecclesiastical sort of category to an evangelistic category because he says, he says, always seek that which is good for one another and, this is another item on the list, and for all people. Oh, wow. For all people. This means everyone. This This includes your enemies, this includes your neighbors, this includes people around you, you know, everyone. You seek good for them. Seek to do them good. Now, this brings up a larger issue dealing with the often neglected, seriously underestimated power, influence, importance, and force of common grace. You've heard me harp on this before. But common grace, which is rooted in God's covenant dealings with man, especially after the flood, namely that God would keep the world from descending into utter depravity. And even though I know it feels like that sometimes, but trust me, this world has not seen utter depravity. We've seen total depravity, but we have not seen utter depravity. God in His grace has kept the present world, or as Peter says, the world that now is from descending into that level of, of, of chaos and debauchery. But God made a covenant with Noah so that He could preserve the world from its own sin and misery 
And therefore, it will experience a certain degree of justice and goodness and righteousness and moral consciousness. This goes back even prior to the flood. You remember what happened when Cain killed Abel? It said that God was going to drive him from his presence, and Cain panicked, remember? And he said, oh no, uh, this punishment is too, it's too great for me. It will happen that when someone finds me, they will kill me because of what I did to Abel. I'll be known as a vagabond, as a pariah. I'll be known as the scum of the world because you killed your brother Abel, the first siblings on earth, and you killed him. I mean, you're going to be on the world's number one hit list or most wanted or whatever. Remember what God says? God instills a law upon the pre-law world, if you would, that says if anybody kills Cain, right, then he himself will be killed. In other words, there was some sort of common grace law that was enacted to preserve Cain from retribution, from vigilantism. In other words, God was saying all the way back then, vengeance is mine. Don't take matters into your own hands. Why am I saying all of this? Because we neglect to understand how, well, how good common grace is, how gracious it is, but how real it is, how real it is that we can have common grace relationships with our unbelieving, unsaved family members and neighbors. Just this week, I was preaching the gospel to uh, one of our neighbors, and I shared the gospel with her for hours, and um, um, it was such an incredible experience. Just, I, I, I walked in that house afterwards. I told Trish, Trish, it just went down. I shared the gospel with, you know, our neighbor down the street, and I know what's going on over there. She's got some teenagers. They're rebelling. All kinds of stuff is going on. Things are out of control. I could see it all over her, and I gave her an analogy that just clicked everything. I said, you know, if you don't seek the grace of Christ, if you don't seek salvation in Christ, you'll find yourself on the treadmill of self-righteousness. You'll just be going and going and going and going and going, and you'll just be working and working and working and working and, and try to be a good, good mom, good wife. You know, you can be responsible, clean the house, and you're just never going to get anywhere. And she said, that's exactly who I am. I said, I know. <laughs> I'm a pastor. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. We're all on the treadmill of self-righteousness if we're not resting in the total righteousness of Christ. We will seek to do it all on our own merit if it's not on His merit. But, we, but I was able to have that conversation with her, not because she's in Christ, but because God graciously has granted us the ability to have decent relations with our neighbors, to show them good. Didn't Jesus talk about this? Matthew chapter 5, going back there. Boy, we're in Matthew 5 a lot, huh, Brian? Matthew 5, Matthew 5, Matthew 5. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp in order to put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, 
you do not know, but that if you follow what Paul's saying here, do, seek good for all men, everywhere, indiscriminately, universally, seek to do them good, to show them good, to be good to them, to be kind to them, to be patient with them. You never know. You might be the only person in their life that even shows them any level of goodness or kindness or patience. You may be the only thing that they will ever encounter in their week, in their day, in their year, in their life that is some sort of expression of the goodness and kindness and mercy of God. And hopefully, God will use that, as Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, on the day of visitation. That's the day of visitation in the Old Testament was the day that God came either in wrath or in salvation. But in that context, the day that God in His grace may visit them with the gospel so as to save them. You don't know, but that that, that little act of kindness might be the seed that God uses to finally open the eyes. Right? And if we underestimate what a simple act of goodness and kindness towards our neighbor may do, then we underestimate the gospel. It's that simple. I have like a whole page on common grace. I'm like, that's another sermon. Why did I do that? (laughs) But you get it. Let me read it one more time for us. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. I'm just praying that It's kind of like what Piper said about lust. He said, you got five seconds. Five seconds. Boom. Comes into the mind, goes to the heart. The gears are turning. You got five seconds. If you don't kill it right there, you're doomed. It's kind of like that. You you receive a harsh word. Somebody offends you. Somebody does something to you. You got five seconds to decide what you're going to do. So you feel that sort of indignation rising with you. Kill it! As soon as you feel it. So, nope. Lord, (laughs) I'm going to choose a different mind. Because my mind is polluted. My mind, I can't trust my mind. Seafold, wicked above all things. I I choose to empty myself of my mind. I need a different mind. And I'm using that from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Use the mind of Christ. So what does the mind of Christ do? It doesn't take offense, right? Just like love. Love is not easily offended, right? That's what we do. We, we don't take offense when we get hurt by others and those types of things. We seek to reconcile. We seek to return good in place of evil. I bet you if you return good in place of evil, you will disarm Whatever the enemy is trying to do, what can you do against evil? You can't do nothing against, I mean, what can you do against good? You can't do anything against the good. Where are you going to go from returning a blessing to someone when they have a cursing for you? Where are they going to go? They don't know where. They're going to be like, forget it, not worth it. He didn't want to fight. He didn't want to argue. That's the only way I believe that we are actually going to mortify that sinful impulse in our hearts that we often justify with being righteous and just and in the name of vindicating ourselves in truth, we often go beyond justice and seek vengeance which belongs to Him alone. Amen? Father, I pray that as we meditate on that, that supremely in our minds, 
would emerge the picture of the cross. Because at the cross is where we saw one who laid, truly laid down his rights. It was like a lamb before shears, silent. The only one who ever lived who had the right to stand up for himself. He had the right to retaliate against his enemies because he was holy, because he was blameless and truly above reproach. And yet when reproaches fell upon him, he did not return evil for evil, but instead responded with the greatest good the world has ever seen. Lay down his life in the place of wretched, unworthy sinners such as ourselves. And so, Lord, above everything, the gospel teaches us to look to Christ in seeking to do what is good. Would you enable us to do that, O Lord? Would you, by your Spirit, would you prompt our heart when we are inclined to respond so hastily, so quickly, so rash, when we are inclined to respond so quickly in self-defense, would you allow that a sweet subduing would come upon us by your Spirit? Humble us, Lord, to the dust. We confess before you now that we need you to help us with that. It's so hard for us to do this. That's why we need to take a whole sermon for one verse. Because we haven't arrived And so, Lord, we forget whatever lies behind us and we press on to what's ahead towards the mark of Christ that we may understand more about the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the demeanor of Christ, the disposition of Christ, what it means to be Christ-like to one another and to the world around us. Father, please have mercy on my neighbor. Pray that you would use the words that I shared with her and Save her and her household, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.